You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Back when I was in graduate school, my professor, Don Lavoie, uh, coaxed me into attending a lecture by a very famous philosopher at the time entitled The Word uh, Spoken and Written. Um, and uh, at the time, I think most of that talk went above my head. Um, but in recent uh, months, I've actually been thinking quite a bit about this, especially as I, I feel that the uh, spoken dialogue within economics today in our public has deteriorated uh, to some extent. Um, and, uh, and I started trying to remember this, this uh, philosopher's talk about what it means to elevate uh, the word in spoken and written form. And actually, and, and, and this is not hype, it's actually a real thing, uh, is that uh, one of the, the reflections on this that really has gotten me thinking is actually Russ Roberts himself, because I consider econ talk to be the ideal type of what we should hope in economic discourse or political discourse in our country uh, intellectually. I, I was particularly uh, driven by this in, uh, in some recent conversations that Russ has had actually over the last year, including one with uh, climate scientists and the debate that took place uh, in that and the way that Russ negotiated that. And so I really do think econ talk has elevated uh, and is a force for good in the way that we should think about having civil discourse uh, and whatnot. But it's also true that if you look at Russ's written words, he also does that as well. It's, uh, there's no doubt that he has very strong uh, priors, but he doesn't let those priors then cause the conversation to fall short, but instead uses it as a way to spur and, and elevate. If you look at this most recent uh, book um, about how Adam Smith can change your life, which by the way, uh, there'll be copies available after the talk uh, for you to purchase and perhaps you can coax Russ into signing it. That might be a mutually beneficial exchange that Smith would approve of. Um, but um, so it's not from the benevolence of Russ Roberts alone. Um, but, uh, um, you know, uh, the other book. yeah, yeah, if you would, that's true. <laughs> uh, I, I only see one book. Anyway, um, that's a different conversation. Um, but how Adam Smith changed your, so well written, and yet at the same time subtle and learned that you just swept up in the intellectual journey with Russ uh, and, I would add, Adam Smith. And so I'm very excited about this panel today because we have three experts on Adam Smith. Um, to talk about uh, the great uh, works of Adam Smith and particularly uh, Adam Smith's great other work, uh, which is the theory of moral sentiments. The way the panel will go is Russ Roberts will lead off um, and give us a talk for somewhere between 25 and 30 minutes and then followed will be uh, Ryan Hanley. We're gonna just go in the order of the, uh, of the line here and then uh, my colleague, Dan Klein. Um, so Russ Roberts uh, is currently uh, the, um, I got to read this now, by the way, this is what happens when you get older, you got to switch glasses. Um, so Russ Roberts is the John and Jean uh, Denault Research Fellow at Sanford 
University's Hoover Institution. Um, he is the host of, of Econ Talk, as I just said, and he's the author of uh, works such as The Price of Everything, um, and it's a, a parable of possibilities and prosperity, which was published by Princeton University Press. Um, he's a co-creator of the Keynes and Hayek rap videos. Um, and uh, on the Econ Talk, again, uh, the, the guests have been uh, legendary uh, on that, including uh, Joe Stiglitz and Thomas uh, Piketty. Uh, again, uh, perfect examples of how Russ is a very civil and learned uh, sort of uh, debate interlocutor with these people. Um, one of the great uh, sort of losses for us at George Mason University is that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ross ended up by having, Russ ended up by having a better uh, option over at, at Hoover and, and ended up by leaving us, but we benefited greatly from his time with us. And before that, he was a professor at Wash U in St. Louis um, and taught at Rochester, Stanford, and UCLA. Uh, Dan Klein, I'm just going to go down this, sorry. Skipping Ryan Hanley. Let me just skip. Okay, Ryan Hanley. Ryan Hanley is a, is a professor of political science at Marquette uh, University um, in uh, Milwaukee. Uh, before joining the faculty at Marquette, he was a postdoc fellow at Yale's uh, Humanities Center. He is the author of Adam Smith and the Character of Virtue um, and then the editor of the forthcoming Adam Smith, a Princeton uh, Guide. Um, he, has, uh, he has been the past president of the International Adam Smith Society. And then uh, Dan Klein is the GIN Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center and a Professor of Economics in our Economics Department, where he leads the program on Adam Smith. Uh, his teaching focuses on economic principles, public policy issues, and uh, the liberal tradition of Adam Smith and F.A. Hayek. Um, he's the author, most recently, of Knowledge and Coordination, a Liberal Interpretation, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2012. Um, he's the founder and chief editor of Econ Journal Watch, uh, which has become a uh, main uh, source for economic criticism uh, in the economics profession. So without any further introductions from me, let me turn it over to Russ. And so please welcome Russ Roberts. Well, thanks for those kind words, Pete. And I, uh, I, uh, I really loved being here, back here. I loved being here. It's an incredible university and an even greater economics department. It's special in so many ways. Um, and I appreciate you calling the panel a group of experts on Adam Smith. I see at least five people in the room, and I don't see everyone in the room well, but I see at least five people in the room who know more about Adam Smith than I do. But uh, I'm happy to be sixth and uh, let people think about who those other five are. But anyway. Uh, Adam Smith is the second best thing to come out of Scotland, and the first isn't golf. But I, but I felt that way before I read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and as I write in my book, I'm very grateful to Dan Klein, who approached me uh, a long time ago, five years ago maybe now, and said, we ought to do an Econ Talk episode on The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and I thought, that's great, I've never read it, that'll be good for me. And as I write in the book, I regretted that because for a while because I couldn't figure out what the theory of moral sentiments was about. Uh, but I pushed uh, through and kept reading and eventually got something uh, of the hang of it. And after six hours of conversation with, with Dan, six different Econ Talk episodes, uh, I was a lot smarter and Dan gave me amazing comments on the manuscript. So I'm very grateful to him. And I'm looking forward to Ryan Hanley's comments as well. But I do want to admit that Dan and I don't agree on everything about Adam Smith, so I, I'm looking forward to hearing what I still have to learn. 
Um, my book's an attempt to make the theory of moral sentiments accessible to a modern audience uh, and apply those lessons to modern life. Uh, most of those examples are about family, friends, work. And I'm going to summarize that briefly here. I hope you'll read the book. That'd be great. Uh, and ideally, you'll read the theory of moral sentiments as well. How many people here have read the theory of moral sentiments? Raise your hand. Uh, this probably is the, uh, the only room in the greater Washington area today that has anything close to that proportion. I'm pretty confident <laughs> about that. Um, but what I want to focus on today are the lessons of, uh, of Smith for how we think about ourselves as economists and policy advisors um, and as moral philosophers. So I'm going to do a little bit of it's sort of a two-pronged talk. A quick look at what the theory of moral sentiments is all about. Uh, and then what I've been thinking about after having written the book and what its implications are for how we teach economics, think of ourselves as economists. In addition to my book, I'm going to draw on an Econ Talk episode that I did with Vernon Smith, my second favorite Smith. Um, and I'll also draw on a recent paper I did at uh, Econ Journal Watch. I'll quote from that in a couple of places, and I'm happy to share that link with you. And of course, my email address is russroberts at gmail.com if you're interested in having a conversation afterwards, uh, as well as in the hall. Uh, so in, in the early editions of the Theory of Moral Sentiments, and there are at least five people in the room can tell me how long this uh, subtitle was there, but there used to be a subtitle, and it was an essay, very 18th century, an essay towards an analysis of the principles by which, an essay towards an analysis of the principles by which men naturally judge concerning the conduct and character first of their neighbors and afterwards of themselves. So the book is about how we feel about others and ourselves, our judgments of our character, our actions, our thoughts. He's interested in this book of, given how self-interested we are, why do we ever sacrifice our self-interest to help others? What motivates that behavior? How is it sustained? What gives us deep pleasure and satisfaction in life? How do we treat those around us? When my neighbor's in the hospital, why do I visit him? Why do I bring my neighbor food when she has a baby, even though we're past childbearing age? Why do I listen to your, my wife and I, why do I listen to your boring story when I have better things to do? And more importantly, why do you listen to mine? Why do I turn down a lucrative consulting opportunity that I think is ethically a bit iffy? Now, these are questions which we all face in life, and there are many ways to answer these questions. Smith's answer, I would argue, is a very simple answer, uh, which I push very hard in my book, maybe a little too hard, but he does mention it more than once, a few times. He says, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And by loved, he means respected, honored, praised, paid attention to. And by lovely, he means worthy of praise, praiseworthy, worthy of honor, worthy of respect, worthy of being paid attention to. And Smith... Uh, that's his very, if I were going to uh, caricature, but I think fairly, his model of human behavior and how we interact with others, that's what's at the heart of it. How do we come to make decisions in those settings when we face conflicting uses of our time, when we face conflicting uh, opportunities between ourselves and helping others? Smith says we imagine we have an impartial spectator perched on our shoulder, uh, sitting, observing us, watching us who does not have skin in the game, who is impartial. And unlike myself, he, uh, as we look at our own actions, this person, this, this imaginary spectator is who is impartial, uh, is, is going to make a judgment based on what is good and decent. And of course, I don't always listen to that spectator. Smith is very aware of the fact that we are uh, prone to self-deception. The way I describe that is we want to be loved. So we want people to pay attention to us and respect us and honor us. 
We want to be lovely. We want to merit that respect. But we really are very prone to thinking ourselves as lovely, even when we're not. So we're prone to self-deception. We're prone to uh, overvaluing our, our positive attributes and undervaluing our negative attributes. And Smith's uh, very aware of that. The famous story uh, from Smith, of course, is the earthquake story, which I will repeat. Uh, how many people who know the earthquake story? Raise your hand. So for those of you who don't, a quick story. But I, I mention it partly because uh, I really it bothers me deeply how it's often misinterpreted. So Smith says if you have, he imagines two events. Event number one, you discover that millions of people have died in China in an earthquake. Event number two, you're told you're going to lose your little finger uh, tomorrow. He says the first, you'll make some protests of sadness. You'll mention how sad it is. You might make a, you might worry a little bit about the. The, a business that you have located there, that your firm is, is doing business there. Uh, you might give to charity to help the people if you could. Uh, and then you'll sleep like a baby. But if you're, gonna told, if you're told you're gonna lose your little finger, uh, you might toss, you'll probably toss and turn all night. And people usually end the story there and say, Smith thought we were so, he was so cynical, we thought we were self-interested. But of course, the rest of the passage says, uh, if that's true, which is, I think, undeniably true for most of us, that we care much more about our little finger than we do about events that happen to strangers thousands of miles away, even in the world of, of cable television and the web. If that's true, then if I had a choice and I could save my little finger by killing millions of people, would I do it? And rationality would suggest you'd like to. And Smith says, but you won't. And he says, no one is that monstrous. Uh, we all understand that we have a natural impulse to see ourselves as the center of the universe, but if we act as if we are the center of the universe, we will not get very far in life. He says, though it may be true, therefore, that every individual in his own breast naturally prefers himself to all mankind, yet he dares not look mankind in the face and avow that he acts according to this principle. He feels that in this preference, they can never go along with him, and that how natural soever it may be to him, it must always appear excessive and extravagant to them. Uh, he then goes on to quote something, which, as a Patriots fan, I find painful to read. In the race for wealth and honors and preferments, he may run as hard as he can and strain every nerve and every muscle in order to outstrip all his competitors. But if he should jostle, that is, jostle or bump into, if he should jostle or throw down any of them, the indulgence of the spectators is entirely at an end. It is a violation of fair play, which they cannot admit of. This man is to them in every respect as good as he. They do not enter into that self-love by which he prefers himself so much to this other and cannot go along with the motive from which he hurt him. They readily sympathize, therefore, with the natural resentment of the injured, and the offender becomes the object of their hatred and indignation. Now, I go on to use the idea of the impartial spectator as a way that we, I'm, I don't know if all of us uh, really use the idea of an impartial spectator. We really conjure up what people will think of us if we behave in one way versus another. But I use this as a way that we, as, as, as moderns, can attain mindfulness. Mindfulness being, being aware of what we do, aware of who we are. Smith says, of course, that if we saw ourselves as others see us, we would have a very painful time. And so we tend not to see ourselves as others see us. We see ourselves as we'd like to be seen. Now, Smith says there are two ways to be loved. He says, we can pursue wealth, fame, and honor. Excuse me, wealth, fame, and um, power. Those three things, he said, are what give people prominence. They give people attention. They uh, cause people to be admired and respected and talked about. And when a person who's famous walks into a room, 
It's overwhelming. I use the example in the book uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, out of deep love for Adam Smith, came down the, the aisle here and sat down in the front, eagerly taking notes so they could learn more about Smith. My lecture would come to an end. No one here would be paying attention to me. Everybody would be trying to get a glimpse of, of them, including me. Uh, I would find myself drawn with my eyes, probably without even noticing it or wanting to, to, to see what they were up to. Uh, so Smith says this is an inevitable uh, consequence of wealth, power, and fame. And as a result, we are seduced by it if we're not careful. That's one way to be loved. He says the second way to be loved, to get it to, to be respected and honored, is to basically be a good person. And he has two strategies for that. He has propriety and virtue. Propriety is the minimum standard. You have to do what's proper. You have to conform and harmonize with the people around you, meeting their expectations socially. Virtue, of course, is a higher standard. That means going out of your way to do something for other people. Uh, typically, although he has th three virtues I emphasize, prudence, that is take care of yourself, justice, don't hurt other people, and benevolence, help other people when you can. Uh, those are very high, difficult things to do. The, the justice is the easiest one. It's fairly easy not to hurt other people if, if that's your goal. Uh, prudence is a little trickier, and, and of course benevolence or beneficence he talks about is, is very challenging. To help other people genuinely, as opposed to pretending to help them or wanting to help them, it is very difficult. But those are the, the virtues that I think we all understand are, are, are part of being a good person. And Smith says you have a choice. You can take the glittering path of glory, fame, and, and wealth. You can be ambitious. And he says, don't go there. That's a, that's a bad idea. Uh, why the author of the um, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations should be as negative about wealth as he is uh, in the theory of moral sentiments is an interesting question we might talk about in the, our, uh, after uh, the presentations in Q&A. But Smith is very hostile to wealth, mostly, in this book. It's certainly hostile to wealth as a goal. He's very, uh, he says it's a fool's game. He says it doesn't make you happy. Uh, it's not the way to go. You'll be happier. And it certainly is very disdainful of celebrity, very disdainful of power. And uh, he he's, tells us that the way to get the good life is to, is to be good. And that's the right way to be loved, is by being lovely and earning uh, the love through, the, uh, through your good behavior. And he talks a lot about how seductive those other paths are, and he counsels against them. Uh, to my mind, the most beautiful and maybe the most important example, the invisible hand in his writing, which, of course, is never, uh, he uses the invisible hand twice, once in each of, uh, in any sense, related to what we use it. He uses it once in the uh, Wealth of Nations and once in the Theory of Moral Sentiments. In neither case is he really talking, in my opinion, about spontaneous order. We'll see if my co-panelists agree or not. But he describes emergent or spontaneous order in, in his books often. And to me, the most, uh, one of the most eloquent ways he does that is he talks about how norms and civilization emerges from our interactions with each other, our desire to be loved and lovely, and how the sticks and carrots, the incentives, the, uh, the prices that we pay for bad behavior and the rewards we get for good behavior get reinforced by those around us and signals a lot to us how we should behave and act well. And that, in turn, creates the norms that we are reacting to simultaneously. He does that in about a page. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and uh, um, it's just, uh, just, a, it's just a wonderful thing. So here's a thumbnail sketch of Smith's view of how we view ourselves. This is a summary of what I've said so far. We're flawed. We're a mix of self-interest clashing with the desire for respect from those around us. 
We're prone to self-deception. We're easily seduced by money, power, and fame. We have a desire to be lovely, a desire to do the right thing. And loveliness, what is the standards of being lovely, emerge from the reactions and behavior of those around us. So this view of human beings, which I'd say is the center of, of this book, raises a lot of questions. Uh, one is, I'll just want to mention briefly the, the classic so-called Adam Smith problem. How do we reconcile that there seem to be two Smiths, one who says we're self-interested and one who says we act selflessly, and why don't those two themes show up in, in, in the other book? So there's not a lot about uh, self-sacrifice in the wealth of nations, and there's not a lot about uh, uh, um, self-interest. There is some self-interest, of course, in the theory of moral sentiments, but it's not the focus. So my answer, which parallels uh, uh, Ronald Coase's and a little bit of Hayek, is uh, that Smith's talking about two different spheres of human interaction. He's talking about trade at a distance in the wealth of nations, and he's talking about our intimate personal relations face-to-face in uh, the theory of moral sentiments. And I'll expand on that uh, a little bit in, in a second. The second question I want to ask, which I'm going to bring that back to, is what might economists learn about behavior from thinking about Smith's vision of, of our nature? Um, so I want you to think about that for a sec. We've got the standard version of human behavior that comes out of the wealth of nations, which is human beings are self-interested. We have this other, I would assert other, you could maybe say they're not in conflict, but certainly is a seemingly different model of human behavior in the theory of moral sentiments, that we want to be loved and lovely. That does not seem to be the same thing as his model of human behavior in the wealth of nations. So my answer as to why they're different is, well, they're different spheres of activity. What's the implication of that for how we teach economics, how we think about public policy? So that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in the rest of my remarks. So the usual answer is, well, we, we use self-interest when we talk about most spheres of economics, the demand for shoes, iPhones, haircuts. Now, that's, that's utility maximizing, demand curves. That's commerce. That's, that's economics. So that's all about self-interest. I get on the Internet to find a good deal. I'm not thinking about being loved and lovely. I'm thinking about getting a good deal. Uh, then you would say, well, does that model apply when I want to think about how people behave, say, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor? Is that same model of utility maximization, self-interest, cost-benefit analysis apply? Now, Vernon Smith says that's not the same thing. It's not just there's a different utility function when I deal with my family. Uh, what Vernon argues is that Deirdre McCluskey's vision of that first self-interest model, which is max U, maximization of utility. Uh, max U, when you're max U, that person, uh, maybe that applies for haircuts. Um, but Vernon really says, not, it's not just that I have a different set of things in my utility function when I interact with my family. What Vernon argues, and I think he's right, is uh, when I'm dealing with the internet or going to the mall to buy shoes, I'm thinking about what's in it for me, okay? Think about that, what's in it for me? Self-interest, what's in it for me? I'm looking for a good deal. But Vernon says that when we're in small groups, the world of the theory of moral sentiments, it's not, a, this is a very, I, I, this is a tricky concept of Vernon's, I, I think I get it. It's not about behavior, it's about conduct. It's not about maximization, 
It's about conformity to the unwritten rules that emerge from our interactions. Sure, it's about what's in it for me, because that's embedded in my DNA. But it's also about my awareness that when I'm interacting with other people, I have to temper my self-interest, and I do that by following rules of conduct. These rules emerge from the bottom up, the way we treat those around us to create harmony in our interactions with others. And my analogy is it's the difference between a basketball game and dancing with a partner on a crowded dance floor. So think about those two extremes. We have a basketball game over here, and we've got a dance going on over here. Both involve cooperation, right? You've got teamwork, and you've got partners dancing over here. Both have competitive aspects. The team's trying to score, trying to play well. Over here, I might be trying to show off what a great dancer I am or not humiliate myself with what a lousy dancer I am. But on the dance floor, I'm focusing on what is appropriate behavior, what is proper which is not stepping on my partner's toes and not banging into other people on the dance floor. I don't mind being the best dancer. I might, that might be a bonus. I might even try to show off a little bit. But my focus isn't on proving that or I'll be a very unattractive dance partner. Consider a different kind of dance, marriage. If my goal in marriage is to get as much as I can out of my marriage, I won't be a very good husband. Can you model a marriage as maximizing utility? Of course you can. Does it capture what I'm actually doing? When I offer to drive carpool, when my wife needs some help, when it's, say, it's her night to drive carpool, and she says, can you help out? Do I sit down and say, well, this will be good for me, because that means on Saturday night we can go to that movie that I like? Is that what's really going on? I would argue it could be, and it could be you could assume that's what's going on, but if it's actually what's going on, it's not a very good marriage. That's, that's, that's my claim. And in general, most of us believe deep down that what we're trying to do in the marriage is not to get the most out of, out of the deal and not to take ex, ex, advantage of our spouses. There is a non-trivial part of human behavior where I focus on doing the right thing, even to my detriment. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. Or at least where expectations about what is proper virtuous clash with my self-interest. I may fail. I may choose the selfish thing. I may fool myself about what my real motives are. And yes, I know I can assume that doing the right thing is what makes me happy, and that's an uninteresting tautology that fools me into understanding that, uh, I, that I understand it. Um, now, one reaction to this claim, that there are two modes of behavior in, in, in between dealing with strangers and commercial dealings versus dealing with people near me, is that this is interesting, this Smithian stuff about respect and being a good husband and, 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 and honor and conduct and, and conforming. That's, that's nice, but that's not what most economists look at. 95%, 99% of what we look at, it's self-interested stuff. It's the demand for iPhones, it's Uber, etc. And Smith was able to write The Wealth of Nations without referring much to the sympathetic aspects of our nature. This suggests that the richer view of human nature espoused by Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments adds little to economics. Oh, it's fine for psychology. And then, you know, that's not what economics is, though. Demand for oil, international trade, too big to fail. That's what we do. And that's self-interest. That other stuff, that's psychology. That's sociology. That's, that's not us. We don't, need, we don't need to do that. Oh, there might be somebody who does it as a special imperialistic e economist, like Gary Becker, who I'm going to mention again in a minute. 
But that's just, that's like a flaky, kooky thing. We don't, you don't need that to do all the other stuff that we care about. To further defend the mainstream view, which I'm rebelling against in this talk, but to further defend the mainstream view that we don't need the Smith of the theory of world sentiments, one could argue that all the implications of the richer Smithian model can be, I'll call it perspective because it's not a model, of the richer, at least in the formal sense, all the implications of the richer Smithian model can be gotten by just manipulating the utility function. If people care about their relationship with others, we'll put it into the utility function. We'll explain why people might be willing to sacrifice personal well-being that way to help others. In this model, I bring food to the family of a newborn even when I no longer expect additional children. Without expected reciprocity, I, extend, I expend real resources and gain a feeling of belonging, and that's, good. that's my self-interest. Now, my early work on charity took this approach. Much of Gary Becker's work was an attempt to enrich the more sterile versions of homo economicus as a self-interested uh, maximizing machine. Becker managed to maintain the richness of human behavior while keeping the formal models of utility maximization under constraints. His artfulness is rare, however. Now, whether this approach is productive of jamming everything into the utility function and maintaining the standard toolkit of modern economics is um, an interesting question. I'm going to put that to the side. Instead, I want to speculate on how the very style implicit in the two approaches, the match-you approach of utility maximization under constraints and Smith's emphasis on conduct and conforming to the rules that emerge, the norms of society, has implications for economists. Now, the truth is, we're not just interested in predicting behavior. We pretend that's the case. Sometimes we pretend we're just scientists. And we may even fool ourselves into thinking that's the case. And there may even be economists for whom that's true. I can think of one. I'm not going to name him. I know one economist who I think doesn't have any ideology. He's not philosophically oriented. And he's just interested in humans. He doesn't really have a desire to make the world a better place. But that's very rare. Most of us care about two things. We care about how people behave and understanding it. And we care about using that understanding to make the world better. Does utility maximization really describe the world? Does it really describe what brings us lasting satisfaction? Does it matter that it's realistic or not? Or is it sufficient to assume that we act as if we're maximizing the Milton Friedman defense? Now, Robert Frank has argued that teaching economics makes you selfish. The way we teach economics causes people to be amoral at best or immoral. I don't know if that's true. But I do think that even economists confuse what is rational or self-interested with what is moral. Now, Paul Fleiderer, who's a finance person at Stanford, has a fascinating paper called Chameleons that I recommend to those who are interested in this kind of, these kind of issues, where he argues that in finance in particular, we have confused our models with reality and used them to make predictions for good public policy that have no basis in science. That basically by making an incredibly unrealistic model that has certain characteristics and certain um, parameters, we then come up with the ideal parameter that would then maximize welfare, forgetting the fact that the model itself is not capturing what is actually going on in the financial sector. It's a very uh, provocative work. It's, a, it's an attack on this idea that as if models are sufficient. Does our focus on utility maximization and calculation mislead us about the fundamental sources of human satisfaction? My speculation is that if you are trained to see human beings as something akin to calculating machines, if your research sees them as calculating machines, 
And if you teach your students to view them as calculating machines, it is inevitable that some of that perspective will affect how you view public policy. The dominant view of economists is that the economy is a mechanism that we as economists are able to configure via the levers and dials of public policy to improve on the outcomes that emerge from the private choices of individuals. This is the worldview behind monetary policy, fiscal policy, Pigovian taxes, subsidies, antitrust, and various paternalistic restrictions on diet and our leisure choices. This view is so dominant that public policy should be used to improve people's lives based on our understanding of how people behave and what makes them tick that we rarely question where it comes from. What is the basis for the view that the policy suggestions of economists can improve matters? Well, our theories, of course. But do our theories actually capture what's going on? Why are we so sure? Perhaps some of the hubris of our policy advice comes from our mechanistic view of human nature. The simplicity of calculating the combination of goods and services that maximizes utility and that creating more utility is a mathematical calculation, an engineering problem with a solution. If we human beings get our deepest satisfactions from things other than material stuff, welfare economics as it is traditionally constructed is meaningless. So where does that leave us? And I'll wrap up. I was trained at the University of Chicago. If I could travel back in time and put my old self into the audience today listening to this talk, I would be disgusted. I would find this, I would dismiss this talk as ridiculous, unimportant, and silly. I would argue that the self-interested models of utility maximization are very powerful. It leads to useful predictions. I would call this kind of talk an attack on neoclassical economics. It's stuff we all know already, and I'd go on about my business. I would argue that it's just a failed version of behavioral economics. It's failed to provide a useful alternative to rational choice, and that experimental settings are not how people make real-world decisions in markets, and I'll keep my Maxu approach. Thank you very much. Part of me still thinks that. But then there's Smith. Should I just ignore the insights of Smith about face-to-face -face interactions? How should I think about growth, assuming we even understand how to create it? Is development in impoverished places that reduces the role of fellow feeling always a good thing? I confess to being drawn to the view that human flourishing is what we should care about, that what brings deep satisfaction is respect and interacting with others, what we're doing here today, and that money is overrated or at least more of a necessary but not sufficient condition for flourishing. Most of the interest in flourishing comes from the left, from Marcia Sen, Martha Nussbaum. They want to empower the government to solve the problem, a problem that government's very inadequately designed to solve. Government doesn't do flourishing very well. See schools, comma, public, though we're sitting in one. What government, at least, at least at the K through 12 level, what government is good at is killing people and taking one group of people's money and giving it to another group. They're not so good at figuring out what makes us sing that gives life soulfulness. My worry is that our methodology as economists may be encouraging us to see human beings as pieces on a chessboard whose motions and workings we purport to understand. And that in turn makes us prone to be men and women of system with an overconfident vision of what will serve to improve the well-being of the chessboard we are managing. The Smithian view of man encourages a humbler approach to human welfare. We are complicated creatures, we human beings. The road to improvement isn't as well mapped as we may like to believe. And recognizing the complexity of human motivation should make us more humble about our ability to intervene in private choices in a way that is welfare enhancing. 
There's a Smithian perspective that makes money secondary to things like using your talents, joining with others to create great stuff, whether it's products or whether it's uh, social movements, earning respect. Maybe those of us who believe in smaller government might find such an approach appealing to those who are less, less sympathetic to, say, tax cuts. We should be humble about what we don't know and perhaps even more humble about what we think we do know. That is what I think is the real lesson from thinking about Smith in a modern context. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, Pete, and uh, thanks very much both to Mercatus and to uh, George Mason for hosting this wonderful event. Uh, so, can reading a book really change your life? Russ Roberts uh, thinks it can, uh, judging from the title of his work, and in so thinking, he turns out to be in pretty good intellectual company. Uh, no less a thinker than Henry David Thoreau once marveled at precisely the same phenomenon, uh, exclaiming in Walden, quote, how many a man has dated a new era in his life from the reading of a book, end quote. So the sort of project in which Robert seems to be engaged in his book has been around for a fairly long time, at least since before the American Civil War. At the same time, to realize how venerable and indeed ancient this project is may be to realize how difficult it is to pull off this project today. Think of the sort of conditions of life in which Thoreau wrote his own book that sought to change men's lives. Antebellum Concord, I suspect, was a qu relatively quiet and sleepy sort of place, certainly not the uh, greater Boston commuter suburb it's since become. But even then, Thoreau had to get out of town and to retreat back to his shack in the woods. Life-changing reading and life-changing writing, he knew, are no ordinary activities, but ones that take focus and leisure and quiet. Yet, Focus, leisure, and quiet are precious and rare commodities today, and I suspect few people know this better than Roberts himself. His own reading of the theory of moral sentiments, he tells us early on, was prosecuted in part at the halftimes of soccer games. Moreover, Roberts knows that he's not just a busy man himself, but that he's writing for an equally busy audience. Indeed, one of the main goals of his book, he tells us early on, is to make Smith's life lessons accessible to busy people. In his words, quote, to give you Smith's insights and some of the best of his writing, just in case you don't get around to reading all of the original, end quote. So his aim, as he says, is to put Smith into, quote, unquote, digestible form, and indeed a form that is, quote, more accessible than the original. Now, I can't but enthusiastically endorse this ambition. Like Roberts, I think the more Smith the world can get, the better off it's likely to be. It's thus wonderful to see that this book does for the theory of moral sentiments, something of what P.J. O'Rourke's book did for the wealth of nations, and what Nick Phillipson's recent biography has done for Smith the Man. That is, it paints an attractive, approachable portrait of the man in his work, rendering each accessible to audiences who may not have the resources or inclination to study the texts themselves. Now, insofar as I make my own living as an academic specialist on Smith, I realize I'm clearly not the target audience for these books. But I'll still make bold to say that Roberts pulls off this project extremely well. Reading his book, I was continually impressed by his remarkable ability to translate 18th century examples into a 21st century perspective. Indeed, one of its finest moments is its opening recasting of Smith's earthquake in China passage into a busy modern office setting. 
So to anyone who's ever taught at any level will absolutely delight in Robert's illustration of flattery via his portrait of those all too familiar students who gushingly proclaim how much they loved our classes even as they're turning in their blue books at the end of the semester. As these and many other examples attest, Roberts is a keen observer of everyday life, much like Smith himself, and indeed one who has a real facility of pitching his observations in a way that will captivate his audience, again, much like Smith himself. Now, all that said, I take it that Robert's goal, though, isn't simply to update Smith or make him relevant for our times. As his title says, he wants to show us that reading Smith can, in fact, change our lives. But what does this mean? In large part, it seems to mean that reading Smith can help us live good lives by providing us with some useful practical wisdom about how to navigate life's most familiar challenges. As Robert says, quote, Smith tells his readers what the good life is and how to achieve it, end quote. Now, some specialist readers of Smith might balk at this description. Smith himself is rarely quite this direct, they might say. But Roberts, to his credit, sticks with this and uses this as a very helpful organizing principle for the book. Take, for instance, his chapter titles, chapters that include, among others, ones on, quote, how to be happy, and quote, how to be loved, and quote, how to be good. These promise quick wisdom on big questions, and indeed not just wisdom in an abstract, head-in-the-clouds sort of sense, but rather in a much more practical news-you-can-use sort of sense. Indeed, in Robert's hands, Smith comes off less as a moral theorist than a practical moralist, that is, less like his friend David Hume, author of dense philosophical treatises and enquiries, then he comes off like Hume and Smith's mutual friend, Benjamin Franklin, himself the quintessential self-help author of the Enlightenment. And this, it should be noted, is itself a time-honored way of reading Smith and TMS. Before he was elected president, Woodrow Wilson, as a Princeton lecturer, once told his students that Smith, quote, stores his volumes full with the sagest practical maxims, fit to have fallen from the lips of the shrewdest of those Glasgow merchants in whose society he learned so much, end quote. And well before Wilson, Smith's first biographer, Dugald Stewart, said much the same thing, observing of TMS that, quote, with the theoretical doctrines of the book, there are everywhere interwoven with singular taste and address the purest and most elevated maxims concerning the practical conduct of life, end quote. So here again, Roberts is in good company. But that last line from Stewart might give us reason to pause. Like Stewart, Roberts finds a good deal of practical wisdom and solid good sense in TMS. But Stewart also feels compelled to mention that there are in TMS certain quote-unquote theoretical doctrines. Now, Roberts' book, from start to finish, is clearly after something other than these theoretical doctrines. But their absence might lead one to wonder what we might miss if we read TMS strictly as a storehouse of practical maxims without also casting an eye on its theory. And I confess that if I have even a little mild unease with Robert's book, it would be here. That is, its relative silence on the theory. And by this, I don't want to suggest that Roberts ignores the theory. Roberts, in fact, does an excellent job of introducing us into a quite concise and compelling way to Smith's thoughts on sympathy and spectatorship and virtue and judgment, among other topics. Instead, my concern here is that if we focus only on Smith's practical morality, without also some appreciation of Smith's theoretical reasons for treating practical morality in the first place, we may come away with a rosier picture of what that practical morality looks like, indeed a rosier picture than what Smith himself might have recognized. Let me try and be a little more specific at what I mean here. Um, take, for example, Robert's account of how Smith understands the good life. On this front, Robert says that for Smith, quote, 
Getting the most out of life means choosing wisely and well, or as he says, quote unquote, making good choices. Now, as an assessment of what it means to get something good out of life, this may well be true. But I confess that when I read it, I thought less of Adam Smith and TMS, who, so far as I know, never says anything quite so direct as that, than of Jamie Lee Curtis in Freaky Friday, who delivers just those words in a lovely scene designed by the filmmakers as a send-up of classic bad parenting. The key point here is that in clarifying Smith's lessons in this way, we may run the risk of making him slightly more direct than he was inclined to be, and perhaps also run the risk of losing sight of some of his insights into why it is that making good choices is so difficult for so many today among the ch amidst the challenges of commercial modernity. And so herein lies uh, what I would like to do, turning uh, briefly to Smith's own text. Uh, it seems to me that there are certain aspects of living well and becoming virtuous that Smith focuses on somewhat more than Roberts does. Case in point is what Smith has to say about benevolence. One of the most important discussions in Roberts' book concerns um, Smith's understanding of how much good can really be done by pursuing self-interest on the aggregate and how much evil, in fact, is often done by politicians who claim to be acting benevolently. This is a crucial Smithian teaching, and Roberts conveys it, I think, quite brilliantly and powerfully. But there's also another side to benevolence in Smith, and we don't get quite as much of that here. It's a side that comes out with particular power into what, to my mind, is one of the most striking passages in the entirety of Smith's corpus. And if you'll indulge me for one brief second, I'd like to read uh, a brief passage from uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is 2333, if you're thumbing along in your copies here. Uh, quote, man was made for action and to promote by the exertion of his faculties such changes in the external circumstances both of himself and others as may seem most favorable to the happiness of all. He must not be satisfied with indolent benevolence, nor fancy himself the friend of mankind, because in his heart he wishes well to the prosperity of the world, that he may call forth the whole vigor of his soul and strain every nerve in order to produce those ends which is the purpose of his being to his advance. Nature has taught him that neither himself nor mankind can be fully satisfied with his conduct, nor bestow upon it the full measure of applause, unless he has actually produced those ends." Now, this is striking stuff, especially coming from Adam Smith, of all people. But it's a key part of Smith's story of precisely what a human being is and just what purpose our lives on this earth may have. And as such, I'm sorry not to see a bit more of it in a book that otherwise so courageously and insightfully treats this side of Smith's project. Uh, in a similar vein, I was very pleased to see in Robert's book his focus on the figure that Smith calls the quote-unquote wise and virtuous man who Roberts quite rightly recognizes as the very embodiment of the moral ideal to which Smith thinks we ought to strive. But at times I wondered whether Roberts emphasizes quite enough just how challenging Smith himself thought the pursuit of wisdom and virtue is. Here's one thing that Smith says about the wise and virtuous man, and indeed how he comes to form his ideas about virtue. Quote, in the wise and virtuous man, these ideas have been made with the most acute and delicate sensibility and the utmost care and attention have been employed in making them. Every day some feature is improved. Every day some blemish is corrected. He has studied this idea more than other people. He comprehends it more distinctly. He has formed a much more correct image of it and is much more deeply enamored of its exquisite and divine beauty." End of quote. That's from TMS 6325. Now, 
this is clearly pretty demanding stuff on Smith's account. Becoming truly wise and virtuous, we're told, requires the quote-unquote most acute and delicate sensibility, quote-unquote the utmost care and attention. That is strenuous observation, day in and day out work, careful study and understanding. This is a somewhat different emphasis, though, certainly than what we get from Roberts. Roberts is quite wonderful at calling attention to all the little improvements we can and should make around the margins of our lives, and which added up are likely to make us better and happier, becoming more patient, becoming more mindful, becoming kinder and gentler. These are clearly all changes that Smith himself would endorse. But the pursuit of wisdom and virtue seems for Smith to demand more than just tweaks at the margins in our spare time. As he sees it, pursuing virtue is some sort of full-time job. Uh, with that in mind, let me close by coming back to the beginning. When I read TMS on just how hard the pursuit of wisdom and virtue is going to be, among other things I think of is, in fact, again, Thoreau. In that same chapter in which he describes how many have dated new beginnings in life to encounters with books, Thoreau also insists that reading such books in the right and necessary sort of way is hard, indeed harder today than ever. So here's Thoreau, quote, the heroic books, even if printed in the character of our mother tongue, will always be in a language dead to degenerate times. And we must laboriously seek the meaning of each word and line, conjecturing a larger sense than common use permits out of what wisdom and valor and generosity we have." End quote. Now, this is hard stuff again. And both Smith and Thoreau knew that most of us just aren't going to be up for it, whether because we lack the time or the inclination or the dedication or the patience. And if that's true, how likely is it today that readers are going to change their lives because of an encounter with a book, even at first hand? My suspicion is that such an encounter is unlikely to be of the sort necessary in order to teach bad men to be good or good men to be great. But in the end, that's probably okay. Roberts, I suspect, is probably less concerned to make bad men good or good men great than to make those who are already decent just a little bit better. And this seems to me not only a wholly laudable goal, but also one that Smith himself would likely recognize and support as fundamental to his vision of a flourishing commercial society. Seen thusly, changing one's life means not the reinvention of oneself, but rather an openness to being ready and willing to take practical steps that might enable us to become a little better, a little calmer, a little happier than we are now. For doing so much to contribute to this worthy project, Robert certainly has my thanks, and I'll make uh, go so far as to dare to presume would very likely have earned Smith's thanks as well. Ross's book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, comes across, as Ryan's remarks highlighted, uh, as a self-help book. Now, you might suspect Russ of disguising a political book, specifically a classical liberal book, as a self-help book. But it is a self-help book. I'd say it's both a self-help book and a liberal book. The book suggests how you can improve your own life and one of the suggestions is to utilize liberal principles in making your pursuits. The thrust is not to make liberal causes your causes, but to make your pursuits in light of liberal wisdom, conditioned by liberal wisdom. Rust suggests that you accept commercial society and that you center your pursuits in voluntary, peaceful realms of life, family, church, neighborhood, work, play, commerce, in realms of life <clears throat> where we can take part in honest cooperation 
relatively free of corruption. The book is political in that, for the most part, the questions in life, the questions of the big questions, the most important questions of meaning, validation, identity, duty, community, the book says, be very wary of political answers to those questions. The economics of the book lies chiefly in explaining that your duty to serve your fellow human beings, like in the passage you just read, Ryan, uh, very often has no better way to proceed than for you to pursue honest income. Russ's approach is to share his own encounter with the theory of moral sentiments, just as you started today about how you, when, when you first got started, you felt a little lost. It was really exciting, actually, to be with Russ on this journey. I also got to read the book in manuscript, so it really is, the pro his approach really is to share his own uh, encounter with the book. And a book like Russ's could be written only by someone who had had an encounter like he had, had the courage to write about it, and had the ability to do so so effectively. I don't know who else could have written such a book, honestly. If you want to read TMS but find it daunting, start with Russ's book. You will hear his experience with the work. Russ's book is like a pathway to TMS. I'm very hopeful that it'll, over many years, maybe not like a fast splash book, but over many years will lead people into TMS. It acquaints you with the central ideas, and I have to say, young people today are fortunate to have Russ's book to take advantage of. I really wish I, really wish I had had it when I was young. <clears throat> Here, I, I thought I would make a few remarks, actually more about TMS than about Russ's book, so in this way mine are a little different than R Ryan's comments, but relate those remarks uh, back to Russ's book. Russ quotes Smith on self-deceit. This self-deceit, this fatal weakness of mankind, is the source of half the disorders of human life. So self-deceit seems to be a big source of vice and disorder. But Smith also points to another source, namely faction and fanaticism. Of all the corruptors of moral sentiments, therefore, faction and fanaticism have always been by far the greatest. So faction and fanaticism are the greatest, and self-deceit is the source of half. So it sounds like the sources of trouble pretty much, pretty much covered here. Uh, and by the way, on related to faction and fanaticism, Smith also says, maybe this is kind of a separate category, false notions of religion. False notions of religion are almost the only causes which can occasion any gross perversion of our natural sentiments in this way. And that principle, that is one's own sense of the deity or God's validation, which gives the greatest authority to the rules of duty, <coughs> is alone capable of distorting our ideas of them in any considerable degree. Okay. But wait, he adds the following, overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another. The source of both the great misery and disorders of human life seem to arise from overrating the differences from one permanent situation and another. Hmm. Now he seems clearly to have surpassed the ceiling of 100% in his account of the vices and disorders of human, of human life. Uh, and there's more. Uh, <clears throat> speaks, uh, Smith speaks of people failing to show reserve, 
uh, and burdening people with their own experience. And it is for this want of, I'm sorry, it is for want of this reserve that the one half of mankind make bad company to the other. Oh, and he comments on the, the admiration of the rich and powerful. This disposition to admire and almost worship the rich and powerful and to despise or at least to neglect persons of poor and mean condition is the great and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments. And by the way, on this head, he advises, never come within the circle of ambition, nor ever bring yourself into comparison with those masters of the earth who have already engrossed the, the attention of half mankind before you. Well, it seems pretty clear that Smith's like past 200% in his account of vice and disorder, uh, but actually there's more. <laughs> Smith writes of the ambitious place, pursuit of place, and thus place, that great object which divides the wives of aldermen, <clears throat> is the end of half the labors of human life and is the cause of all the tumult and bustle, all the rapine and injustice which avarice and ambition have introduced into this world. Where are we now? 300%? Well, there's two more. <clears throat> Pleasure and groundless applause. To be pleased with groundless applause is properly called vanity and is the foundation of the most ridiculous and contemptible vices, the vices of affectation and common lying. <clears throat> and then the propriety of our moral sentiments is never so apt to be corrupted as when the indulgent and partial spectator is at hand while the indifferent and impartial one is at a great distance. So he's, I don't know, pushing 400%. Let's review the sources, self-deceit, faction and fanaticism, false notions of religion, overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another, want of reserve, disposition to admire the rich and powerful, the pursuit of place or status, pleasure and groundless applause, and the impartial spectator being at a great distance. So it seems like he's double counting or triple counting or quadruply counting. Uh, <clears throat> so the overage, some of it anyway, can be chalked up, of course, to exaggeration in style, but there are two other ways to see the matter. Uh, first, to explain a vice or a disorder, Smith might be giving not only explanations, but explanations of the explanations. So if we're starting off with a vice, we might say that oh, when you see people do that kind of thing, 50% of the time it comes from this. Oh, and this, some 50% of the time it comes from this. And this, oh, some 50% of the time or whatever percent it comes from that. Okay, so to call that layering, there's like many layers to account for, not just, just one layer. A second way to make sense of Smith is lenses. That is to see each source of vice as a lens. So when Smith says that self-deceit, quote, is the source of half the disorders of human life, we might read that as half the disorders of human life can be fruitfully interpreted through the self-deceit lens. And that doesn't mean that such the same disorders can't also be fruitfully interpreted through, say, the faction and fanaticism lens or the want of reserve lens or any of the other lenses. <clears throat> so, for example, take, take uh, 
the action of some, some guy, Joe, say, circa 1918, who helped promulgate, who was an activist for the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which imposed prohibition. This amendment passed in 1920. Joe's activism for prohibition, obviously uh, vice, uh, in my view, uh, might be usefully viewed through several of the nine lenses. Think about it. You got Joe, the, uh, the prohibitionist, pushing this. Yeah, maybe it'd be good to think about that in terms of his self-deceit. Maybe in terms of faction and fanaticism. False notions of religion. Overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another. Want of reserve, for sure. Disposition to admire the rich and powerful, maybe. The pursuit of place or status, yes, maybe. <clears throat> Pleasure and groundless applause. Uh, and the impartial spectator being at a great distance. So in reading Smith, I think that we should read him as offering layers and lenses, not neat schemes that make things line up to make a grand total of 100%. I've talked now about sources of vice and disorder. Now let's turn it around to virtue. I think the same reading applies. For virtues, too, we have layers and lenses, not a neat scheme that makes a grand total of 100%. And here I voiced a small reservation about Russ's book. Russ says that, quote, Smith tells us how to lead the good life, <clears throat> that Smith offers a roadmap to happiness, goodness, and self-knowledge. He writes, quote, virtue is multifaceted for Smith, but his big three, as Russ mentioned in his remarks today, are prudence, justice, and beneficence. These are the traits that make us lovely. These moments in Russ's book, pardon me, sorry, um, <clears throat> smack a bit of the neat scheme image of virtues, rather than seeing Smith as offering a plexus of layers and a set of different lenses. I'm really not sure that I'd say that TMS, quote, tells us how to lead the good life. I'm more comfortable saying that it helps us in pursuing the good life by telling us what not to do. In my view, TMS, while exoterically a book principally about life among equals, like you and your neighbors, is also, and partly esoterically, a book about politics, a liberal book about not looking to politics for answers, and about the moral tragedy of governmentalizing social affairs. I think it is very important to realize that some of the main distinctions he makes between the sets of virtues, but some of the categories of virtues that he sets up, are made so as to advance liberalism as opposed to being made so as to create a checklist of virtues and a guide to practicing them. The sets of lenses that he offers are fashioned, in other words, sometimes to teach lessons in politics, not lessons <clears throat> in private morals. And just as we had the vice example of Joe, the prohibitionist, a concrete example may illustrate virtue as lenses. Consider the act of writing how Adam Smith can change your life. Definitely a virtuous act but think how we can apply the different virtue lenses. In one respect, the act was the author's practice of prudence. In another respect, courage, definitely. In another respect, industriousness. 
In another, beneficence. Maybe more specifically, generosity. And in another, perhaps gratitude. Russ's gratitude to Adam Smith. Many virtues, many layers, many lenses. And gratitude is an appropriate sentiment to conclude with. We have much reason to be grateful to Russ for a truly remarkable contribution to learning about Adam Smith. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.